welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour and joined by the faithful panel as always, Mr. Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? Uh, I'm good. And Mr. Jason Diamond. How are you, sir? Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, this week we are uh, we're playing with toys. We're at Toy Story 4, a film I wasn't sure I was going to like because I like Toy Story 3 so much. Um, but I'm keen to discuss it, though, in the words of Rex. I don't like confrontations. So <laughs> hopefully my fellow panellists uh, will have similar opinions. But, hey, um, this is one of the uh, I guess landmark computer graphics uh, franchises of all time. It's the one that kind of defined uh, everything that came after it. Uh, Toy Story 1, obviously, huge, huge film. Um, but Toy Story 3 felt like it finished off a trilogy in a beautiful way in probably one of the most moving sequences of a, an animated film I've ever seen. Uh-huh. So I went into four going, I don't know if I'm going to like this. So, Jason, do you feel the same way? Did you feel the same way? And, and how did you feel coming out? I weirdly, I didn't even know this movie until like, you know, maybe a month ago they were making a Toy Story 4. I was just sort of somehow off my radar. Oh, wow. and, and, I didn't, and I didn't see a trailer, nothing. And once I realized it, I was like, everyone's like, oh, did you see the trailer? I was like, no. And I mean, I think I knew like when they announced it way, way back and then I just forgot about it. And I love Toy Story a lot. And same, I agree with you. Toy Story 3 was incredible. Uh, And I think it took the franchise both from a narrative standpoint and an animation and technology standpoint like through the roof. So I went into this one almost blind and a little nervous because uh, three did, you know, end up great. But I thought this movie was fantastic. It was hilarious, funnier than the other ones. Like, like consistently, like they played a lot more jokes. It feels like, um, and of course, it had the, you know, the villain and the um, spoiler alert for anyone listening. You know, had the toy villain instead of the human villain. Uh, the first two were human villains, and it seems like the second two are toy villains. Um, and it, it, it's kind of hard to talk about it without just going into you know the movie in minutia. But I will have I do have to say that it was might be the best um, animated anamorphic from a lensing and um, and depth of field cinematography standpoint for animated anamorphic i think hands down beautiful yeah i mean there's no doubt about it we're in a pantheon of great films when we're discussing the pixar films um and toy story 3 yeah i mean toy story 1 is obviously incredibly significant but you know has aged because of the technology three um was i guess the one we're going to peg most um though let's find out what matt thought matt what do you reckon um, I, I guess I would say I thought it had beautiful lighting and rendering and, um, you know, the, the technology is probably one of the most interesting parts of these movies from my perspective. Um, you know, I've seen all these movies, but I should say, I guess I, I don't know that I feel any real sentimental attachment to these characters or this world. Like it's not a place that like, which makes me kind of weird, I suppose, but, uh, it's, it's just not a place that I'm delighted to return to. Um, and I don't know, I, I, you were never delighted to return or you weren't delighted with this film? Uh, I, it's one of the ones that I guess I feel like I go and see these movies cause I feel like I should go see them and you know, well, they're, yeah, you they're, they're, they're entertaining. 
but I don't, I, they're just not movies that like, I don't go, I don't rewatch them, you know, like they're not. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. And they're, they're, yeah, they and, aren't actually aimed at you probably. Yeah. And, and, and I totally get that. And like, you know, I, when my son was little, like they were definitely more kind of, you know, I could see going with my kid and stuff, but it, but I don't even know if those were things that ever really resonated very deeply in our household. And so this movie to me felt like. Oh, that's interesting. What? Well, I was going to say, like it's in my household, it's the exact opposite. Because in my household, yeah, same. one of my daughters didn't like this film as much as three because, uh, which I thought was really interesting. She's like now, you know, no longer a teenager even. Like, so she's older, but she saw it. And um, she said the trouble is the movies were buddy movies. It was, you know, yeah. Woody and, and Buzz. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that made them what they were. And in this one, you break up the partnership of those two guys and so while she thought it was technically excellent and just thought it was very funny and you know um kaboom and all that kind of stuff they're great new characters she just really lamented the fact that from a personal point of view uh it was just sorry they were sad to see that sort of buddy aspect not in this film which of course you could argue well they had to do something different because the fourth one yeah but she had such emotional attachment to it that even as a like 20 21 year old she was like yeah you know um i guess i just i just felt like if this movie were food uh it would be a processed food (laughs) whose primary ingredient was high fructose corn syrup and after watching it oh come on that is harsh after watching i felt like after watching it i was slipping into a diabetic coma i I don't know you are are you you are you are wrong. This movie sir. was it was, you are, you are it was cross man. This movie was cross format focused for maximum airplay success, and uh, I don't know. Oh I, I'm God. bombarded by the uh, who are you, Les Nessman? The bounty uh, <laughs> paper towel tie-in. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I just it to me, it's like some of this stuff is like uh, it's just not for me. I I don't like I, that bulbous character design language, and I I don't know. It feels like the product of a factory. To me, what okay. you are? I, yeah, you are like a, you are. I think there's a it, gas leak in uh, Richmond somewhere. I'm just saying that's it. So that's, just, I just want to ask you this one question: is is the is the real Matt safe and well somewhere? Just let me know that. <laughs> I mean, um, okay. there's funny moments wow. in it, and there's funny characters in it, and funny. stuff. But it's not. It's not. Um, I don't know. It just doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> I don't. I don't. It God. doesn't. Uh, wait, as a as a counterpoint to that. I will say that I saw the first two Toy Stories without having children at the time in the theater with my friends, enjoying it as adults, and seeing Toy Story 3 for the first time in the theater with my son, because that's he was uh, whatever he was uh, but when that came out. And I saw this film last night by myself at 10 p.m. at night in a theater full of mostly adults. Hmm. <laughs> or yeah. kids above, you know... 15. Yeah, I mean, I went to a press screening, obviously, so... Yeah, um, that's different. That's yeah. where we went, and we had a lot of adults. But but there was one kid in there, um, and uh, you know when the... Um, well, not one kid, there were many kids, but there was one kid near us, 
and you know the uh, the dummies, the sort of ventriloquist yeah. dummy things. Yeah. This kid was just going, "Oh no, that's not right. Oh no, 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 that's <laughs> not right at all. That is not right." <laughs> like, Which is interesting because as a character design, like no kid now knows what a ventriloquist dummy is, much less like the Edgar Bergen, you know, Charlie yeah. McCarthy yeah, kind of yeah, true doll. I mean, the whole kind of retro doll from a fifties mm-hmm. TV show. You know, you yeah. had. But but that's an interesting thing. I think they've moved from being the reference to a cultural thing from our past to being their own thing, right? Like you don't need yeah. to set up who they are because they're so they're so well known. I mean, I in no way agree with Matt, <laughs> but that's okay. I go respect your opinion a little bit to say it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's from just... a technical point of view, though, I, I'm incredibly interested in this film. It's the first yeah. uh, film that Pixar did that's a full risk. You know, the uh, new. Uh, render man uh, render and it has a lot of very interesting uh, properties about the 3D and the way that they did it. Can I show you a couple of facts and stats to get us kicked off on the technical side of things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, uh, so for a start incredibly complex scene. Now they've done incredibly complex stuff in, uh, in Coco um, but there are a couple of things about this that make it really interesting. It's not uh, just the stats about it, but how they... Uh, so it's like the how they dealt with the lights I'm going to come back to. But just some stats. There's about 11,000 um, props uh, in the antique store. Obviously, there was a bunch of instancing, but they came from about 2,000 individual modelled uh, props. So, yeah. Uh, the carnival outside of the um, antique shop uh, had 44,000 light bulbs. And I'll come back to that in one second. The mall, um, <laughs> that whole area is like 8,000 square feet, um, incredibly detailed and only possible because of uh, Pixar's use of uh, USD or uh, their universal scene description. USD is now moving well into being um, an incredibly influential open source uh, way of dealing with geometry. And this film really wouldn't mean possible had Pixar not used it. Now, of course, they developed it internally and now have made it open source, but USD takes on a big um, uh, role in how they managed to handle that. And then uh, there are about 2,000 characters running around in that, uh, in that park outside um, the antique store and the uh, carnival, which wow. is, you know, a lot. I, mean, I was lucky enough at... Were they procedural uh, or were they... I mean, they'd have to be to a certain extent. Some of them, yeah, no? obviously, yeah. yeah. Because, uh, but uh, I was lucky enough to use um, a USD viewing uh, tool on a new Mac Pro, so the new ones that haven't been released yet, the cheese grater ones, at uh, WWDC. And we had a room set up away from the main event after the keynote. And in that, um, Apple had some guys that used to be uh, at Pixar but were working with Apple on USD. And so we had that entire set from inside the actual antique store. You could be at very close-up level. So, for example, there were some... Obviously, all of the props practically in that uh, antique store had had some significance, but some of them had specific significance to prior films. They'd either lifted the assets from earlier films or or created them with those earlier films in mind. So let's say you're at a board, which was the menu board from Ratatouille. You could, you could move in real time interactively in a obviously not fully uh, shaded environment, but in a, you know, pretty good representation out through the um, antique store, out the front door, over to the uh, carnival and then back up into 
sort of lower atmosphere and see the entire town uh, without ever missing a beat. It was just completely interactive. It was an astonishing feat of USD wow. in terms yeah, of just how saw, well that I manages. I saw a couple other write-ups about that, and I was I, that's actually what I was going to ask you if you got a chance to see that or move around in that space. It looked pretty yeah. interesting. Oh, it was it was super great. And it was super great to get, you know, obviously hands on it now pretty impressive computer driving it, but nevertheless, um, it's great to see that companies like Apple, and not just Apple, are supporting USD, and, um, and it's really good. But the thing I want to discuss is the lights, because I think one of the major innovations was the fact that all the lights in the carnival were actually set up with the correct light value to, relative to, say, the sun or to, to each other. So uh, when they wanted to actually light uh, something, they just switched on all the lights, and that lit up the carnival as if it would be lit up. And if it was daytime, you would just see those lights as if you would see them in a carnival during daytime and at night, uh, vice versa. And that was a kind of starting point, just as if you walked onto a set with a whole lot of practical lights at a real location. And then, of course, after that, you put in additional, you know, area lights, whatever you want to produce hero lighting on your hero characters or as you would your hero actors. Uh, but it wasn't a matter, for example, in the antique store of saying, hey, let's light up this set that's really complicated and then spend a ton of time with your lighting team just putting tons of lights in the, in the uh, set to be able to see the 3D. You know, they had a, a large light outside if it was daylight and, of course, it had lights inside the store and with ray tracing and the way they'd correctly aligned these things, you started the lighting process from a realistic, plausible um, lighting setup. And I just think that's a remarkable feat. Just just working at that level, you're moving the yeah. roles of the DOPs on these films to being much more like a normal DOP. Yeah, that sounds... Um, I mean, you, it's, it's... Now that you describe it, because I hadn't read a bunch of that stuff, but now that you describe it, I mean, it makes total sense why you would do that and have any computing power to now do that. But also from a look perspective... Uh, that's one of the things that actually got me was the 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 depth of field and the and the light had a very realistic quality. Like especially the opening scene in the rain was mm. phenomenal. I mean that looked outside of like the cartoony cars or the people or whatever. There were moments when the characters were standing under the car with rain going and reflections and whatever. And if those were actors, like real actors comped into that, you'd say they were in a real scene, right? That they were really wet and all. It's, it was just the interactive lighting and the the way even it seems like they chose to make a lot of the daytime hero stuff slightly magic hour so that they could get the real pop of the carnival mm -hmm. lights. Like when they're s sitting on top of the uh, um, one of the tents or something, Bo Peep and uh, Woody are talking. And there's just this beautiful anamorphic, you know, shallow depth of field behind them. Um, and interestingly, no, I, I didn't see a single anamorphic lens flare, which was, uh, I'm sure, uh, I would call very restrained uh, by, by the team. Because certainly if I was the DP or the director, I'd be like, well, we can make them, right? I mean, they're going to naturally happen, right? <laughs> he jam a light in the lens. Let's have a car pass by or something just because. But uh, 
Yeah, that's interesting because uh, there was yeah, there's I mean, a lot of backlighting in in the antique store yeah. when the daytime hour mm-hmm. like passing through glass and and then in particular in those scenes at the carnival, uh, which actually I thought those were some of the nicest renders. I thought was when they're walking across the I guess it's the rooftop of the. Uh, camper uh, and the, and it's yeah. wet on top and you're getting all that kind of diffuse um, reflected yeah. and refracted light off of the surface of the roof and it's sort of the colored light from the rides in the background and but they're all essentially uh, backlit too and yeah there's I, I noticed yeah, the same thing there's beautiful there's no lens flares but there was um, some really nice too uh, daylight kind of atmospheric lighting uh, mm-hmm. inside the antique store where yeah. there's so many glass Dust surfaces with like the glass yeah. door, the glass windows, then the glass cases and all that stuff I thought was um, on a technical level just, I mean, it's, it was really beautiful to look at. Yeah, they, they actually managed to uh, really go far with the ray tracing and one of the things that helped them is that just as about the time they needed it, uh, Disney Studios Research in Zurich actually came up with a new uh, ray tracing denoiser. So they'd previously, I think, used the one that um, had been developed inside Disney, uh, but Pixar just happened to luck out that they got this new one from uh, the Zurich team. And I know that Zurich team from their work they do on faces and stuff. I hadn't realised that they were doing new um, complex denoisers, but they gave those guys real uh, credit because it it was effectively a magical level of, of denoising difference um, that just, you know, uh, totally changed what they were able to pull off and, or not, uh, which was really interesting, I thought. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was, it was yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I think it was interesting that they also sort of ping-pong between, you know, like inside the camper van is not as realistic as, say, you know, the the inside of the um, antique store mm-hmm. or even sort of some of the rides and gears and stuff. Like it's interesting where it's, I mean, it's very subtle, but they take very subtle approaches on what, like the cars are kind of like slightly cartoony and bubbly, like I was saying before, but just subtly, just a little bit. They have, a, and also when they animate the cars, the cars have just a little bit of a kind of bounce to them, um, which... Um, it, it's and it, I mean, it's like a ten percent difference, but it's like just enough to sort of separate certain worlds, uh, you know, scene uh, uh, set pieces I, and stuff. I feel like a lot of the design choices, though, with I mean, if just in that sense, I, I actually feel like the cars and even some of the structures, and certainly all the the characters and the people and stuff, they're all kind of that foreshortened kind of like that bulbous mm-hmm. kind of like yeah. overly rounded kind of um and sort of squished yeah. kind of shape but then it, there are times where uh like the rain at night and then like the sort of behind the cases like sort of the grime and grit of like you know there's a power strip and like you know dust bunnies and things like that sort of on the floors they're sort of sneaking around in the antique shop and the balance between the sort of photorealism and then the stylization to me, it's one of the things that it's, I love the photorealistic kind of components of how it sort of looks in terms of the lighting and the lensing and stuff. But I feel like, at least for to my eye and to my maybe to my taste too, like the the sort of the the delicate balance between stylization and photorealism, like that's where for me some of it kind of 
on a technical level, it's superb, but on a design level, it's hard. I would love to see what they would do if they were to pursue something that had a much less stylized aesthetic and went for, which I think is kind of sort of their stock and trade though, but it would be so fun to see. Well, that would be, that would be like what MPC is that MPC that's render man on, um, I mean, you know, like a uh, Lion King, like that's like the Lion King is the realistic renderer, yeah. totally rendered film. Yeah? yeah. And we haven't seen it yet. We've obviously seen the trailers. Whereas this is still, because they have a huge problem, which is they've got adults and kids that are human in this. And so the second right. you take everything to photo real, you couldn't have everything real except for the humans. That would look really odd. And then if you yeah. go real on the humans, now you're into Edge of Uncanny Valley and is that what you want to be focusing on and doing? And it's a different film, right? Yeah, but, I guess there's just times for me point, where it just doesn't it doesn't work for me I, on a visual level. Like those design languages I hear, don't I, quite I, function. I, I like it. I mean, I yeah, yeah, I yeah, definitely like I it. I do too. But to Matt's point, interestingly, if you trace the looks of Toy Story one, two, three, and four, one and two, the whole world and the people and everything, and maybe it was limitation at the time of the technology is way more cartoony. And it's not till Toy Story three that you get a way more realistic world like that trash compactor scene or, you know, or the, the furnace scene or, you know, the, the, um, uh, like vending machine that the, all the bug, the, the bugs, the, um, toys are in the, you know, the top of playing poker and whatever, like that's when you started to get, um, way more realistic looking, uh, photo real environments mixed with the cartoony stuff. And this is obviously takes it to another level. And I'm assuming that's not only based on design choices, but also technological availability, um, through the development of the series. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm sure you're absolutely right. I mean, the fact is that there just was a huge amount of tech between when they where they started yeah. and where they you know they finished up. There's just no way um, you know to get around that. Like uh, it's just it was extraordinary to do an animated feature full stop when they did the first one, and I think the second one uh, they were keen to keep it kind of in sync with um, with the first one to not lose it. I mean, that's the trouble with this one is, to a certain extent as well, right? You don't want Woody and Buzz to still look like Woody and Buzz. Interesting, you yeah. don't have that problem with Bo Peep because she wasn't in three. So you effectively right. jump, um, you know, her from two to four. And so she has probably the biggest arc and the biggest difference. Um, and, and to com- pull up on a point that you made earlier, Jason, and to combine that with Bo Peep, if you look at Bo Peep really carefully, um, which I've been doing lately, because uh, we've been doing a story on, um, on uh, FX Guide, um, I was talking to the technical team about this. And um, so that, that denoise that I mentioned before wasn't just a speed issue, um, which, you know, you'd expect it to be. Um, and it was a speed, you know, tremendous speed advantage. In fact, um, I think Bob, one of the technical guys, said that they referred to it as um, a magic uh, bucket of chicken in that you <laughs> eat a bucket of chicken and you actually lose weight. Um, but uh, <laughs> it was that not only was it reducing the time, but it was actually providing a lot of fine detail. And so the reason that they went to this denoiser over the previous one is that you got all this fine detail when you you know, literally halved the render times by using the denoiser. Now, if you don't have a really good uh, denoiser, that doesn't happen. And to get this back to Bo Peep, if you look at her shoulders, 
uh, there's tiny little strands of um, the fabric on her outfit that are sort of backlit, like this tiny kind of uh, little little strands from the material that is notionally right. her outfit, um, which is holding up and staying there and not being trashed through uh, through the process. And that kind of super fine, fine detail. It's an interesting problem because she's meant to be kind of porcelain, right? And her body is porcelain, her clothes aren't. But the yeah. uh, you get these backlit little... Um, it's almost like uh, not fluff, it's but like sort threads. of something coming like threads, yeah, threads, coming off the yeah. material. Which I think I think she had it on the bandage that was also on her, holding her arm on. Mm, though I think they were a little thicker on the bandage. Um, yeah, but yeah, but you're it, absolutely it right. Was, you could see the texture, like you could feel how squishy it was. Versus her hair, which you didn't really yeah. get because she's the kind of porcelain look. Um, yeah. And I'm sure you guys have seen before and afters that compared uh, yeah. what she looked like in the first version to what she looks like uh, today. But as I say, in fairness, that's a jump. Where there were micro hairs on um, uh, Gabby Gabby because she had that, you know, classic yeah. uh, old-style punctured um, hair. And yeah. also on top of the, uh, I don't know the character's name, but you know the little duck guy that's attached the, from the where Buzz oh, yeah. is in the <laughs> shooting yeah. gallery? And he has that kind of fluff, uh, mm-hmm. yellow fluff on the top of his hair. Um, but yeah, those, I think those, those two guys costume. that was their that was their um, Transformers two uh, duo that they threw in there. <laughs> it's like the two those two cars in Transformers two. It was like that, but it was the carnival uh, bird oh, okay, characters. Yeah, yeah. Keegan Michael yeah. Key. And yeah, I forget who the other guy was. Yeah, they're pretty funny. Those guys. I thought they were pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. They, they uh, yes, having comic relief in a film of comic relief is a... <laughs> Kurt Kaboom was like my favourite, right? I yeah, Canada. Duke Duke I did, Kaboom. Yeah. I did I love just, the, just, uh, the Kaboom animation, I thought was, and along with the voice yeah. acting, I mean, it was, that was probably my favourite thing in the movie was how they chose to, in that sort of staccato, kind of quick uh, pose change style, to animate um, the Kaboom character, I thought was and was three, really great. My favorite moment with him was when they make the plan, and the three like army guy figures uh, are standing next <laughs> to him on a rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he gives them, and he, yeah, and he gives them the the high five, and the high five, and the white figure in the back puts his hand up. He's like holding it yes. up, and then he leaves him. He never gets a high five, and yeah, and then he like drops his arm and walks away <laughs> dejected. That was hilarious. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But he was, they you were know, animated was combat, the same way, kind of like really like staccato. It was a combat Carl who got blown up in the original Toy Story 1. Oh, Remember right. they were like Sid next yeah. door was blowing up a toy? Um, yeah. But yes, combat Carl was, uh, combat Carl's going to get played with. Yeah. <laughs> it was just <laughs> so good. There I were, just, there I, were I, two I uh, Star Wars action figures too. I noticed uh, Oh really? Ben Kenobi and the... Uh, what was it? Walrus Man uh, and Ben Kenobi cuts oh, off yeah. Walrus Man's arm in a scene that was in the antique store, which I thought was kind of a, oh, cute, really? a cute little nod. Oh, I didn't get yeah. that. I missed that. Where did that happen? Yeah. yeah, I think it was at the beginning in the uh, in the antique shop, or maybe it was at the. I think it was, and and they uh, they're just sort of. I in remember the, seeing Walrus Man. Maybe it's when they go to the. Um, 
the Bo Peep's room that's like a where's it's like a party. Oh, I see you the Lost Toys. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, the party thing. Yeah, yeah. I think Probably that's was where it was, and it's just happening in sort of the bottom, like right uh, oh, third funny. of the screen, and it's I don't know. I just saw it right away because well, now that Disney owns Lucasfilm, they can do that without any yeah. uh, licensing problems. It was it was cute. <laughs> yeah, it was a cute yeah. nod, you know. The um. The, uh, the eyes are an interesting um, aspect to these characters because if you look at sort of Woody and stuff, you've got very limited stuff that you can do with the eyes compared to, or Buzz, for example, right? Like it's just, yeah, yeah versus Gabby Gabby, which has uh, got a lot of complexity. And then somewhere close to that, I guess, is Bo Peep's eyes. Like they're, they're, all of the yeah. eyes are kind of quite different. None of them are what we do as a traditional eye because the the eyes aren't structured the way that a traditional eye is. In fact, um, Gabby Gabby's interior eye has a button bit where we would have the iris, like it is in a hole. It's a yeah. it's a lump. That's how they made those kids' um, dull eyes way back in but the day. But it has like um, it has like a like um, like a clear coat and yep. uh, a bunch of stuff to it, so it it reflects reflects the light really well. Yeah. So just uh, really like a huge amount of problems to, to solve. They, in an animation standpoint, they use the eyes really well, though. And I feel like I've seen this, we've seen this before in other films, like, you know, the, the Woody character, his eyes are just, you know, basically like discs, you know. But they, they're able to use uh, animation and even just um, composition and framing to sort of convey moments of emotion on the character's face without doing any, you know, primary or secondary animation. It, it's like, it's really just the, 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 the angle and the facing angle where the, his eyes aren't even moving, but that frozen face yeah. conveys so much because it's sort of like, it's in the right moment in the story beat and the character beat. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of interesting that they can sort of play against the technical, um, limitation of the eye through an animation uh kind of gag and and i think it's just as effective and you do wind up with so many different types of eyes including you know the fun sort of googly eyes that you have for uh, yeah on forky Forky, yeah yeah (laughs) forky was pretty remarkable i mean (laughs) really like how do you get that character to walk i mean yeah you know the the challenge I guess they sort of addressed that with the first film when they had those uh, the army men yeah army men yeah by the way I went to a friend's house like a friend of mine who collects art and somebody had some artist I don't, I've forgotten the name now had like made these larger than lifestyle that type of oh, thing man. they weren't from Toy Story <laughs> but with all of that plastic in from the seams where the thing was on it was like this yeah. high art piece hugely gorgeous polished piece and I just so I just so wanted to be like oh it's like Toy Story I thought it was inappropriate I was looking at art but, uh, it was like uh, yeah but anyway um, yeah no, those things uh, had their feet attached as well to a bit like a skateboard level thing where this guy yeah. just had his feet kind of as if somebody had bandaged them together um, yeah but you know what I love and related to your point uh, Matt is that when you get them having humans appear and you'll get a character like Forky who'll suddenly go to inert um, immobile non-alive mode and mm-hmm. just fall over and the ability to just make us suddenly see that they're frozen but not frozen like they're pretending like frozen like they're lifeless and then they yeah. come back to life again yeah. is is magical it's like 
turn off and on the emotion button or the soul button or the, I don't know what button. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, they have the other, it's interesting because the other ones all have joints. So they do this like flop thing. Yeah. But Forky literally just tips over because he has no joints. Right? I think so Rex did that. He like tips didn't over he? and like bends a little. Yeah. Rex just sort of tips over too, but he's so big. Yeah. That he doesn't really bounce the way Forky had this slight yeah. kind of plastic like knocking over bounce, a but tripod also, or something. Yeah, but also to your point, Mike, about the fine hairs. I mean, tell tell an animator or you know your rendering team you want it to feel like a realistic pipe cleaner, mm-hmm. and you know watch them run in the other direction. Yeah, uh, but I mean, it was even to the point where, like when he his hands would come over or his there's that I think I forget what part of it is it just his arm came in and he put his arm on Woody's shoulder or did something, and like as soon as the arm came in, like. You weren't like, what's that? Like, you immediately know what it is. It has texture and feel. And, like, it could, just to Matt's point about the eyes, like, just sticking a pipe cleaner in the frame, you know, animated or otherwise, like, you know, conveys emotion. Yeah. A while ago, I was given a present by Pixar. Uh, I think I wanted it, Sid Graf Asia or something. Anyway, it was the bag with Forky on it as, like, as a print, mm. you know. And I, it was the first time I'd seen the character. And I was like, oh, this doesn't look good. <laughs> this is reaffirming yeah. my concern about this film. <laughs> like, this is just not going to be funny. It's very, you know, obviously flat and limited in its emotional kind of what I thought they'd be able to get out of it. Again, completely wrong. Um, I, I didn't dislike it. I was just like, oh, this isn't going to be my favorite character. And I thought he was, I mean, that sequence when he was just, I am trash. Yeah. yeah. I, you had me at that. <laughs> like, from there on, I was like, bringing him all the time. Whereas initially, uh, yeah, was, Tony, that was Tony Hale from uh, Arrested Development and Veep and whatever. Um, yeah. He's amazing. Yeah, it's funny that the process, isn't it, for making an animated film like this, I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, we, we know that they record the audio separately. Yeah. And, uh, um, but, uh, but Duke Kaboom, right, obviously, Keanu Reeves, Keanu didn't spend any time with, like, Tom Hanks because they record their audio separately, depending on schedules over a long period of time. And so I I saw him on the red carpet and they were like, you know, what's it like? He goes, well, it's great because I finally get to meet Tom Hanks and hang out with these guys. Or maybe you'd met him before, but it was like, you know, these guys are legends and, like, I just wanted to hang out with them because the press was when they sort of got together in a Mm -hmm. traditional sense uh, where you don't have to do that when you're doing uh, dialogue and recording your own... But if you get a right. chance to watch him doing some dialogues, they published them online as kind of, you know, samples of uh, mm-hmm. uh, Duke Kaboom. And uh, the director comes in and sort of asks him to do a read. And he's like, do you want me to do that as a read as if I'm the voiceover of Duke or actually Duke <laughs> doing it? And, like, and he's so enthusiastic. And I'm like, man, is this guy... I, I don't know. I just... I, I, like the rest of the internet, think he's uh, amazing yes. at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know. Uh, I saw a quick clip of Tom Hanks on, I think, Kimmel or something. Yeah. And he was asking Tom Hanks, like, oh, you know, how was it and whatever. And he's like, he's like, Jimmy, let me tell you how this works. Like three and a half years ago, I go into a studio and record voiceover. I have no idea what the movie's going to look like. Zero. He's like, and then every maybe couple months I'll pop in and they'll want me to redo a line or something. That's it. He's like, I've never seen the movie <laughs> the entire time for years. And then 
I go to the premiere and I see the movie and I'm like, oh my God. Like, I mean, obviously he knows what it's going to be. It's a Toy Story movie. Yeah. But like, you know, he's not seeing like render tests and all that stuff. He's off doing, you know, what Tom Hanks does. And Did, Have we uh, discussed the fact that he gets his brother to do the voices for sort of secondary Woody stuff? Oh, and really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So, yeah, so, like, obviously that's there's a amazing. huge demand by the Disney Corporation for Woody to just to do stuff, right? Yeah. And, like, that's so they had Woody introducing, I don't know, to this year's lineup of movies at Disney at some show or right. something, right? You want <laughs> right. Woody to come out, say something, bugger off. Well, you can't get Tom Hanks to do that all the time because, you know, he's our well, generation's most popular and actor. He's, yeah, and he's working. So he just gets his brother to do it because his brother sounds almost identical to him. He ne- his brother never does the films, don't get me wrong. And right. obviously Disney's totally fine with this, but his availability is just much better. And so I bet if you he have, does like know, the other animated stuff they do though, like the commercials and shit. Yeah, if you did a McDonald's commercial, it's not yeah. going to be Tom Hanks's voice um, that's yeah. actually doing Woody, which, you know, I think is fine. But I thought it was pretty nice. But he, the way he said it, it was like, yeah, I give my brother a whole lot of work. <laughs> Yeah, his brother is just from Toy Story. His brother's probably loaded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but That's yes, amazing. That, the other thing, and, and Matt, I'm sure you can probably give us some insight into this, is how much they edited up those uh, audios, right? Like it's not just one take. They massively edit the uh, dialogues for the Oh, for sure. And, you know, one of the other things that I, I thought was kind of interesting, uh, it was in one of those interviews that I've seen with... Um, I can think it was Tom Hanks and yeah, he was talking about how the thing that the other thing people don't realize about the, um, audio, the recording of the voice is he says that it's one of the most exhausting things that he does. Cause for that character, not always, I mean, there are definitely certainly some more emotional scenes, but for the most part, that character is constantly in a state of yeah, um, <laughs> extreme exasperation, right? He's always sort of like yelling and like everything is like a big, a big moment. And so um, the amount of energy required to do numerous multiple takes, because you don't know which one they're going to go with. And, and they might not even have a clear sense when I'm sure they don't, when they're recording, they're trying different things. They're leaving themselves a host of different options. And as the story reel, starts to come together and take shape, you know, as, uh, you know, they cut the the track together, that they've got their boards, they've got an animatic, they've got, you know, then they get their, uh, you know, different uh, takes and versions of shots as they're starting to come together animation wise or lighting wise. And that's constantly being updated. And I'm sure even probably up until, uh, you know, pretty late in the game, there's still the chance to and possibility to go in and use another take at some point if it seems like it's going to work better. If something's not firing on all cylinders and people are looking at it and somebody says, well, you know, hey, what about this? And, and or what if we tried that other take, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've got to say the, um, the editorial team, you, you don't tend to think of these films as being like an editorial marvel, but they oh, are. Oh, man, yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, and and I guess it's it's a double-folded thing. Like you can two-folded thing. You can you can also not only just praise the editing to get to that point, but also uh, you know they do have the ability to say, well, just I need this other shot. So if you're a bad editor, you would just drive the production nuts with wanting extra bits and and bits yeah. and bobs. Yeah. So um, I think also the comedy timing is probably. You know, as much as I think the actors are marvellous, I think you're probably going to be... Um, it's very hard to, to play out those things. I remember hearing John Lasseter talk about the original Luxo Jr. Um, 
with the ball and how when they were doing it, um, you know, obviously Luxo comes in, runs up and down from the ball mm-hmm. and at some point it pops and then it deflates and then he obviously goes off and comes up with another ball. And uh, when he, they did it, the, the team was like, this is wrong. For a start, when it pops, it goes up. And then secondly, it just hung forever before it came down. And he was like, no, 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 we need time for audio. And they're like, no, no, this is wrong. This is just ridiculous. And of course, when the audio is in there, the gag comes from how slow that goes down uh-huh. with the air coming out of it. And so I feel like the editors in this film, because that was obviously one take, but in the editors in this film, a lot of those moments that I think Matt was alluding to earlier about, you know, like the kind of the pauses that you get that are comically funny from Woody as he kind of can't believe something but sort of just stares in, at somebody, um, knowing like how long to hold those things, given that you've got the... They're not riffing on each other. It's not as if you've got all the actors in the room right. performing off each other. Um, I'm sure the comic timing actually has a lot to give credit to the edit team. For sure. Hey, yeah. Um, you know, we were talking about DOPs earlier. One of the other things I didn't mention at the time was, you know, there are two DOPs on all of these yeah. Pixar films? Yeah. Do you want to talk to that? Um, is there a reason there's two that I'm yeah, not aware up, of? Yeah, there's one up front that does the um, basically the, the blocking and stuff, and then there's a second uh, DOP that kind of does the lighting. Um, right. And they did a, a lot of stuff, obviously, in Katana, uh, um, which I thought was... Yeah, I mean, you know, sort of be understood. And for that matter, they do a lot of really interesting uh, processes through the thing. But, um, yeah, no, the just that idea of blocking it and then lighting it. Yeah. You know, well, which is, like, you know, I mean, that's how you do it anyway, right? Sort of sometimes. I mean, sort of. Sometimes you light and walk into it and find your blocking and other, other times you, you know, uh, have a space that you want to block and then sort of adjust your lighting to it. But I... Well, how do you work? I mean, it depends. Like if, you, if you had you Matt know, and depends. I doing a dramatic scene, how would you... It, it depends on the location. Like if I'm... Okay, if, so Matt if and I are in a bedroom. If we had scouted the... Lo- if you're in a bedroom, <laughs> we would, we would light it up uh, Like a contained on space, we, not a... And it, yeah, if, like, so you could take like a uh, scene... Did you see Good Time? The Safdie Brothers movie with Robert Pattinson? Yeah. So there's that scene in the bedroom in the middle where they're, they've gone to that girl's house and the whole room is lit by a television set, pretty much. But, like no, that. but my question to you is, would you, so would, how would you approach it? Like Matt and I have got a dramatic like, sequence where two blokes on the road, we've stopped at a motel where, you know, two just blokes are going to be yeah. sort of so sitting in the motel discussing the next day's exposition. Yeah. How so, would you approach it? Would you block it and then light it or would you not... Um, I think in that case you'd have a limited amount of space so you could light yeah. it and then block around it because you'd have a certain amount of practicals in the room anyway, uh, you know, as opposed to like a f- purely fictitious space, like a sci-fi whatever. Obviously there's no boundaries of where the lights can be because yeah. uh, it's not a real space. So in that case, maybe you would block it out and or you'd have your larger ambient sources like maybe there's a bunch of neon or there's a window with a you know blade runnery thing happen outside and then you you know uh i think there's a tonal massive tonal aspect to it but in in this case it obviously it makes sense because they have a, it's a completely different amount of work than telling your your gaffer or your grip to roll another light in or you know put up a silk or something um so 
I, it's interestingly, I know we talk about like a lot on the show about uh, the sort of magical camera. And it feels like other than, other than very specific moments when the, the toys are doing something that, that humans can't do, they tend to keep the camera work pretty like reasonable to a real world. Like obviously you could get a skater scope down the middle or, you know, some snorkel cam down the middle of the, you know, backs of the, the stuff, uh, the, the containers or shelves or whatever, when they're walking yeah. through past the power strips and stuff. But that's a, those are specials that you can't get away well, with. They, otherwise, they, really, they'll but, scale a camera in that instance. Right. So they'll make a camera that's kind oh, of, well, the, the move is still the move. Yeah. Yeah. But they'll scale a camera to match the scale of the characters in that sense. Yeah. And so elements in the world are bigger, but I actually thought that was one thing in this that was, was really great. And I feel like they've, they've kind of stuck to this for the most part, I mean, it could be wrong, but I, I mean, I feel like maybe all along, but I feel like, uh, you know, ever since like Wally, I feel like there was, there's been such an, yeah. uh, an attempt to really create a, a really gorgeous kind of digital cinematography with like lensing mm-hmm. depth of field and, and, you know, halation and chromatic aberrations and stuff. I mean, they're doing all kinds of really great stuff with the cameras. And I think yeah. they, they, I haven't seen a shot. I, I couldn't think of a single shot in this movie where they had other than the scale concept, but there where there was an impossible mm-hmm. camera or a camera move that didn't yeah. feel like it was something that you would do, you know, with, um, you know, with, with whatever, uh, the move was with actual gear on set, whether it's dolly track or yeah. techno crane or whatever. Yeah. But Matt, exactly. Matt, it's pretty funny, isn't it? Because I totally agree with you. You know, they try and make it like, I think, and you're right. From Wally, they started doing, for example, nodal pans versus mm-hmm. you know tripod pans on the, mm-hmm. so that the pan actually didn't just pivot around the middle of the lens. But on a real set, <laughs> so like like let's say you and I are on a, on a Matt, you and I are doing an animated film. We're trying to keep the lenses to what it would be, and you know, like a track would work like this, blah blah blah. Even though we can do anything, mm-hmm. Jason might be doing a high flying live action thing, and the thing that he might be asked or consider doing with his brother is coming up with a move that seems to be impossible. In other words, the live action guys want to do the thing that you can't work on how they did it and the computer graphics guys want to only do the things that, that yeah. could be possible if you had a real constraint. Exactly. Like, well, I think, but I think it gets um, back to that thing though too where I think we have had uh, plenty of time in the world of, you know, whether it's animated films like 1010 or... Um, you know, the visual effects films like the the Lord of the Rings movies or whatever, where there was a lot of exploration and experimentation with the impossible camera, where they were just like, yeah, we could do anything. Let's do it, you know. And I think that, you know, those movies aren't certainly have, you know, still been successful with audiences and, and made money and all that stuff that's never been, I don't think, the issue. But I do think that there there's something about that real camera motion and trying to replicate something real. I mean, I hear what you're saying in terms of wanting to do the extraordinary, like the, um, you know, the opening shot of children of men or whatever, not the opening shot, but that big long battle shot, you know, and, and wanting to, or the mission impossible, uh, shot in the car or not mission Impossible, um, war of the worlds rather. War of the worlds. Yeah. So, so those things I, I totally get like wanting to try and do that stuff to create a kind of a feel or a, a moment or something where you really feel like you're in the scene. 
But I do think that the um, the digital camera, the CG camera, um, bringing it back into the real world really does ground these movies in a way that I, I think it's, you know, if you're paying attention, you can totally see it. But if you're just a general John Q audience member, I do think it's subliminal. And I think it does have a big impact on the success or failure of at least how we perceive visual effects. In an animated movie, maybe it's more forgiving, but yeah. But I also think it's directly tied to the style of the film because yeah, you have, you know, DreamWorks or formerly DreamWorks or whatever, Sony Pictures or even other Disney movies where the world itself is cartoony and fantastical and then the camera goes everywhere, which is totally fine because it fits that film. But as these other movies try and go for more and more realistic worlds like this movie or Toy Story 3 – um, or Wally, even though it was still bubbly, that you know his planet, you know when you were on Earth or mm-hmm. whatever in the beginning, it's very, yeah. it looks very real. You know they're trying for a realistic thing, that the camera work tends to calm down a little bit even and be Rang- a little Rango more traditional. Had that too, the ILM. Yeah. Film. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Rango had definitely had super restrained, more like traditional filmmaking shots. Mm-hmm. I will say this film, as much as I loved it, I thought it was great, and I'm not saying it's not appropriate, it doesn't break my kind of favourite top two or three list of all-time Pixar animated films because I think I'll for always be incredibly impressed with Wally and for Up for so much non-dialogue yet, you know, effective communication. Yeah. Like. Like if you were to go into the meeting and say, hey, I've got an idea for an animated kids film, we're going to have uh, two people that get really old and then the mother dies or the wife <laughs> dies and we're not going to have any dialogue and that's it, like the first 20 minutes of the film. And you'd be like, what are you, what are you nuts? You know, it just doesn't seem like it would ever work. And then you go, and well, no, then the house gets, you know, like floats away with balloons and you're like, uh, mate, this is just not going to work. And then Wally was just so emotionally, like I just fell mm-hmm. in love with that guy. Um, yeah, and then, as I said, Toy Story 3's end sequence where I'm, oh, I'm yeah. not too man enough to say that I didn't tear up when they were, like, reaching for each other's hands. They were going to die, and in that moment, oh, they were yeah, just going to, like... Yeah, it was just, like, you should not be able to get that good at acting out of pixels that are toy representation. I mean, it was just extraordinary. But I don't know what you guys think. If you were to rate this both on a technical level and on an emotional level, how does it compare with, as I started the podcast out talking about this sort of pantheon of films, where does it rate for you? I, I think I think that this one, like I said in the beginning, I think they lean a little more on the humor than they normally do. I think Toy Story obviously is always a funny thing, but I feel like they're always hitting more emotion. Like there was no montage song in the middle of this there was no you have a friend in me kind of moment which they've had in each movie i think you know where where you, you hear the randy newman song and whatever this this was you know the randy newman there was song, a randy sung, newman song when they were going to the fair right when they were yeah but it, know, when, but it wasn't the same well, like it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. an emotional moment yeah. like when woody you know when buzz realizes he's a toy when he sees the commercial like that's a you know, big character beat and then, you know, they they play, you know, Woody as a realization and, you know, it's more emotional beats. In this case, that song came in the credits with Chris Stapleton singing it, which is great because I love Chris Stapleton, but, you know, there's no, it wasn't the Randy Newman version. And so it was an interesting choice. Um, 
they had the moments though, like the ending moment, you know, with Woody losing his, like choosing to lose his voice box was a, like allegorically was pretty big. You know what I mean? Like, Mm. like, and, and because he's, not only does he use that for other things, the voice, but, but he uses that rope, you know, to do all sorts of stuff. He's like literally changing his life or his, you know, his like ability, spot, yeah, yeah, to do anything <laughs> other than just run or jump or whatever, and and be with Bo Peep, like it was a very, the allegory was super deep, like when because also they made it very, um, they made that you know very villainy Bond villain, like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna take what I need from you from Gabby, but then all of a sudden she becomes a completely sympathetic character, unlike, um. What's his name? Lotso, who I who you understand in three why he's that way, but I don't think he becomes he still gets what he deserves at the end. Oh, right? Stinky Pate. Yeah. Yeah. But but in this case, they actually help Gabby, you know, succeed with Woody's to- voice box to 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 get, you know, in, in, you know, twice. The first time when they think it's gonna happen with uh the girl. And then uh, in the store and then, you know, the, the lost girl, which I thought was, you know, obviously they do the whole, the whole lost toys thing and she was lost. And, you know, like from a narrative standpoint, I thought that was beautifully tied together. Um, Well, it's kind of like, I would put it pretty high. It feels like it's like an exploration of like this whole notion of like, you know, what's your, what is your purpose in life? What's your primary function? But then also like, what are the, what are the choices that you make in relationship to how you perceive that purpose? And over time, you know, that purpose and your relative value to your, to your primary goal, you know, like it sort of changes. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. sort of like, this is like the, like a retirement movie in a way. Right. Like, like, (laughs) well, what he did play, did really play the father figure here, less of a buddy, Blokey yeah, thing to Forky, like a yeah. parent. Yeah, exactly. But also, well, I think that the donation- and even Forky though he's he's questioning his purpose too. Like it's sort of like he's yeah. he is at cross purposes, right? He's sort of a hybrid yeah. version of you know he's this one thing, a utensil, right? But then he becomes yeah. a toy and he resists his new sort of assigned purpose. You know, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I mean, there's some there's definitely some interesting like you know, kind of uh, deeper levels that you can go into oh, with I, the story absolutely. for sure. Well, yeah, I don't know if we've discussed it on this podcast, but I mean, one of the things we discuss a lot in a particular aspect of stuff that I research is something is only what it's used for. And we just, I don't know if we discussed this on the show, but that's the whole idea that like they found this thing, they actually did find this thing, it's a true story, uh, in Roman digs that's like kind of a pole thing, what I said about this, a pole thing with a round thing on the end mm-hmm. of it. And... Um, Nobody knows what it is, right? Like literally no one. And uh, it obviously was something because they found it in multiple places in the Roman Empire. And just no one has any clue what it is hmm. because it isn't something until it's used for that, right? I mean, right. Forky is a toy because he's used as a toy. You know, right. um, the, the, the thingingness of it, the perception of what it is, um, is totally derived from how it's used in the world, not what it was intended to be used for, what it was designed right. for, but, you know, what it is. Well, I feel like we've um, talked about a lot of that on the show in relationship to Westworld in particular. It seems like that comes up a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, that stuff it goes back to Heideggerian and, and uh, you know, existential philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but but it's funny, you know, like that you could even have that discussion about a film that's meant to be a kids' film by Disney about you know toys. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, let's. That's what I like about the films, right? I mean, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed seeing this film more than I thought I would, obviously, because I was a little nervous about it. But also, there was part of me that was a bit like, "What am I, as a 50 year old guy, going off to a you know kids movie for?" <laughs> like, this seems kind of odd. And I'm like, "Well, yeah, I've got lots of technical reasons why this is important, and yeah. there'll be subsurface scattering." Well, I have no I problem with it, it because I'm a 12 year old in my brain. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, like, uh, but. I mean, I would, I would to my to your earlier question, I would put this in the in the Toy Story. I, I it's hard to rank the four films because I we can rank them technically, but I think they actually function really well in an arc. Like you couldn't say, well, three is mm. better than two, but three ha- but three could only be better than two because two existed because they build on yes. each other. They're not, yes, you know, that's uh, a good point. Lone films, so I think. I personally, and and I to what you just said, I did not know what to expect going into it, other than people saying, "Oh, you know, Tony Hale did a great job as Forky," and you know, some of the some of the reviews I didn't read them, but people were like, "It's incredible," or like, "You're like, all right, fine, whatever." Like, obviously, it's going to be good, but like, I actually like, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, I went by myself, so I didn't have that like social. Like, you know, when you go with somebody else, you your enjoyment of the film is directly related to how much your friend or your uh, sibling, wife, child, whatever oh. enjoys it, right? Especially so, with kids, right? Right. So I was sitting next to, and this was oddly, I sat down, I, I bought a seat like 20 minutes before the movie. Yeah. And there was one seat left in like the fourth row, like perfect seat just off the center. I was like, oh, wow, cool. And I sat down and there was nobody in the row except for these uh, this girl and her two friends, like another girl and a guy, and they were probably, I don't know, late teens, early twenties, maybe. And I was sitting there and I, I, they were talking to each other and I kind of heard them say something about like me by myself sitting right next to them with a whole empty row. (laughs) And, and I leaned over to the girl next to me and I said, Oh, by the way, you know, this was the last seat, the whole rows, the whole theater sold out. And they're like, well, where are those people? And I was like, I don't know. And then I was like, in my head, like, should I move or should I, (laughs) just stay here like it is kind of weird now but then I was like fuck it I'm just gonna stay and I stayed and then like literally 10 minutes into the movie after the after the uh previews a whole family showed up and sat there and I was like okay now I feel like a little more you know whatever normal but but listening to those kids next to me in their early 20s or whatever they were like laughing and like giggling with each other and like elbowing, like, Oh, pointing at the screen or whatever. Like that just, I was like, okay, it's not just me. Everyone's enjoying this. Like, uh, I'm not just like a toy story nerd or whatever. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't even know why I started saying that, but it just was a, uh, it's nice to, to, to be in the theater and enjoy something with, with a lot of people, even if it's people you don't know, to to know that it's working. I think the other thing I'd say is it's very lucky in one sense that the film did go as well as it did because if it didn't, I think people would say we're in a post-Lassiter years and it's not going to work. And um, Right. And I think that would do a discredit to the enormous number of artists that contribute. I don't think the Toy Story films, as much as I 
think John Lasseter was very good creatively. I just don't feel like that's a fair thing to just think there's one guy, you know. So if it, if it had not worked for whatever reason um, and it had been, oh, we well, don't have John Lasseter, so, you know, of course it right. didn't. I think that would have been, um, you know. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. anyway. I, well, I, I like for the other artists that went well. Yeah, a million percent. I mean, it, it's it's good when, you know, uh, it's good when the what's perceived as the star player in some some instances isn't there but the team does well anyway so everyone goes okay it's not just them yeah is, is this the first pixar film that didn't have a short i don't i think That's so I, I thought when the movie started i was like is this the short or is this the or is this the movie yeah it was interesting yeah I will, I will say, yeah, looking forward, I'm not 100% convinced I'm going to like Onward. It's coming out in March 2020, which is, you know, the uh, kind of, it looks to me a lot like uh, one of the films that might have come out of DreamWorks. Um, right. Yeah. I'm, I mean, now Soul, Pete Docker's film that's going to be, because, you know, he did Monsters, Inc. and Up. And, yeah. Um, Soul, I think, could be, could be great. I haven't really seen much about it yet, but I mean, it sounds like yeah. it could be really, really good. Um, by the way, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention The Incredibles because I've got to say that's one of the other Disney films that um, blew my mind, just how much the original Incredibles just was uh, that opening sequence when they're talking to Cameron, it's meant to be like a retro sort of yeah. pick up from when they were younger, was jaw-droppingly good in terms of character animation and setting up the characters and just human-type quirks that we're seeing on the screen. Um, so, yeah. But, Matt, did we ever get from you? What, what are your favourite uh, of these sort of, and don't have to be Pixar, but like of these animated-type films, um, what would be your go-to one or two films technically and, and creatively? Do you have mm. any? I mean, I, you know, I, I, I guess I, I, I'm not a huge animated film fan in general. Like, that's not my go to like you know if i if sure. i if i had a choice between going to see toy story 4 and taxi driver right i'd i'd go see taxi driver or first reformed or something you know like i mean that's kind of more my jam i think but um but with regards to these movies i mean i do go see them because i'm certainly interested in the technology and and they definitely can be really entertaining i would probably say of the the last um 15 years or so of animated films. I, I do think I would put, um, Wally, uh, probably at the top of my list, certainly for that first half of the movie. Um, I think it's, it holds together entirely as a total story, but that first half, the, the aesthetic, mm. the look, the design, um, yeah. the sound design in essentially what is a, a, a totally nonverbal, almost a silent movie, really. I mean, there's sound design and stuff and, and audio cues and music, but, um, but there's no straight up dialogue other than the, the dialogue that comes from the, the television and the sort of, you know, the, the Ben Burt kind of, I think sound design. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so I think in that, that's probably one of my f more favorite ones. I, and I did really like, I think I liked toy story three, uh, I think that's the first VFX show that I actually ever did. I think it was you and me, Mike, and um, Jason Wingrove, I think, if I'm not mistaken, oh, really? huh. I think. Um, 
And uh, I, I did really like that that with a scene we were talking about the ending in the the furnace or whatever. And um, I, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I I, I remember uh, liking, although I've only seen it once, Ratatouille. But I've never gone back and looked at it. I, saw, I liked Up when I saw it because uh, a friend of mine produced that one, and um, it was really fun to see um, something totally unexpected. Um, and then maybe the um, uh, I like the Monsters Inc. too. I think is fun. That's a really neat uh, story. See, so you do like animated shows? Yeah, I mean, you know, animated movies. <laughs> I, I mean, if, if you're asking me about which animated movies would I say that I liked and which ones, how would I rank them? You know, I, I think the first, the very first Toy Story is cool on in just in terms of it being like an amazing sort of technical achievement that they were able to complete and create a short and tell a story, or not a short, but a feature and tell a story that way using, um, you know, a total computer animated thing. So yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a mixed bag uh, for me. I, you can't, I mean, Toy Story One is just a cultural touchstone, right? It was a moment yeah. in time yeah. where because you that know, seen, or what year was that anyway? Ninety five. And 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 don't so, forget yeah. there were other hand drawn films. There was one that like had some pirates in flying ships that Disney did around that time, and I think it had like nineteen ninety five. Yeah, right, and. And they just weren't very good. Like hands-drawn animated films back then had felt really like stale and just not that good. And you didn't like Treasure sure Planet, Toy Story, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, something. And who was in that? It was something? Something quite good in like the voice acting or something. Right? I don't know. But it was a disaster. But the thing is, there was also a sense like it was our film. Like we was like our industry being yeah. taken seriously. Doing yeah, you know, it was a. I, I would say Toy Story One is just as significant as Jurassic Park or uh, T Two yeah. in terms yeah. of you know our industry, and a hell of a lot of people have. Um, there was a period there, maybe for like almost ten years, but it certainly felt like a long period where there wasn't a single animated feature that didn't make money and go well. It was like there was just yeah. hit after hit after hit, uh, not just from Pixar. Like there was you know Shrek and like just a ton of stuff in the early days that was an enormous amount of jobs, an enormous amount of um, good creative work, and it pushed the craft, which therefore saw similar benefits over in, um, in you know, VFX work and stuff well. Well, yeah, you, had, I also you think, had movies like Casper the same year, I think Casper the Friendly Ghost, yeah. which, you know, is a, a great leap in character animation integrated into live action. And then the following year you had, um, uh, I can't remember the director Was now. The Frighteners the, around then too? Frighteners, I think, was 96, maybe, or 97, and I was thinking of Dragonheart. Hmm. Dragonheart, which oh, yeah, well, I don't yeah. think oh. is a great movie, but the uh, achievement in terms of the the, oh, totally. yeah, the Connery lip sync and the character, mm-hmm. um, I think is, in, and I think the, the groundbreaking stuff that they were doing at Pixar and in the, certainly in the computer graphics group at ILM, I mean, it's, they're, they're intimately tied together. Yeah, yeah. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. Scott Squire's work on Dragonheart was just yeah. so good. Yeah. Um, also, I would point out to on. what Matt said before about Rango, um, you know, basically making a Hunter S. Thompson in Chinatown, you know, remake of Chinatown animated is uh, a risky bid and for a kid's movie and – I thought the movie was fantastic, both from a story and the animation was actually pretty phenomenal. And that all the water work, 
uh, at that time, the, the trench run, you know, scenario, um, uh, all the heat and the dust and the, you know, sort of bleakness. Well, yeah, and that, of, that virtual uh, that virtual cinematography, like so many great, again, yeah. great lighting, yeah. great lensing, and I think it was Tim Alexander yeah, wasn't at ILM was. Yeah, Deacons, Deacons, Deacons the, was involved in, I believe, in he some was of the that. lighting. And then yeah, and the, yeah. As Tim Alexander yeah. at ILM, I think, was the one of the the leads on the show, and if not yeah. the supervisor, I can't remember which. Yeah. Well, at that point, we're going to wrap it up. The only thing I wanted to finish by saying is that there was one major criticism I had of this film, that one that just I just would stop me from elevating it above Toy Story 3. We haven't mentioned it, and it was the, the, the thing that was missing. You know what I'm referring to? The character that I just fell in love with, that well, characters that weren't in this film? Toy Story characters? Um, the little green army men? Yeah. No. no. The three no. alien guys yeah yeah the claw the claw yeah no oh, they were the in claw. there you they were, they where, were they, where were they they just didn't talk yeah they were there they just didn't have any real uh interaction they were great right yeah, oh, yeah. the claw decides who will take and who will go i just I love did those like, guys uh, i did like the um the mel brooks as the elephant guy uh, <laughs> yeah just when they were in the closet he had like uh, like five or six lines. That yeah. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I. 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 You know, I've got to say, I found the um, the the claw, the claw. That was just. Yeah. I, those guys were just knocked me out. Um. Okay. So it, I think, as I said, it was a really, really, really good film. I'm so glad for Pixar that it <laughs> went so well, and I'm so glad that um, uh, it looked so good because the technology that uh, went into it is mm-hmm. just something stunning and of course it has a real trickle down effect to so many other things to be able to get these kind of advances now there are a bunch of similar renderers that are doing similar kind of stuff and i don't want to dish on arnold or any of the other things like v-ray who are also doing terrific work but i feel like that's one of the great things like we're just in this time when the renderers are moving to um, realistic lighting and and so in addition to the animation yeah just gorgeous looking film um, but I want to thank you guys for being on the show. Matt, where can people track you down, hunt you down and, and, and point out that you have no taste in animated films? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I'm, I'm happy to wear that or to, to have that uh, moniker. Um, let's see, I'm um, at mattwallen.com uh, and there you can pretty much find any and all things about me and you can, you can write to me and send me your... Um, your critique of my my harsh uh, criticism of this movie. <laughs> and Matt, I know that you're going to join me in saying before we let Jason go, he used to give us like a quick two-second uh, what it was like to being at the Star Wars event on the weekend. Oh, yeah. Oh, know, Matt, yeah. You, you liked watching that. I liked watching it, but I wasn't there. Jason was. What was yeah, it like, mate? It was, uh, it was amazing. It was a um, – the Academy was having a, um, at the Samuel Goldwyn Theatre – was having an Oscars uh, sort of theme thing about um, the technological advancements of the original 77 Star Wars and then how that, you know, what the differential was between that and uh, Rogue One. And, I mean, everybody was there. I mean, we were just planning. Hap- My brother and I were traveling for work and we were like, he had sent me the link. I think, you, Matt, you may have tweeted it or something. 
And he's like, buy tickets for this immediately. Tickets were $5, which is amazing. And uh, I brought two friends of mine and um, um, with my brother. And, you know, to be there with, you know, Ben Burt, Harrison Ellen Shaw, you know, Dykstra, Murin, um, uh, Ben Burt, Marsha Lucas, uh, who doesn't come out much, you know, and she doesn't really like run around doing all the Star Wars stuff very often. Um, and, and many more people, it was amazing. They were running a reel of like, of like, uh, ILM, like 75 to 79, like, uh, sort of home movies, uh, in the beginning. And there was, uh, you guys saw it on that clip and I would suggest people watch it if they, if it's still, uh, which I don't think it will be, right? Yeah. Yeah. The the great thing was the Academy made it public for 48 hours. The bad thing is they only made it public for 48 hours. So a lot of us got to watch it. I'm sure they'll put it back up at some point, I hope. I mean, I hope, but... um, But that opening montage they did was amazing. I was going to say, too, like, you know, for listeners of this show, people who, you know, love visual effects, like... I thought actually the the three the first three speakers, um, the woman who was hosting the event, sort of I can't remember her name yeah. now, but who told her story, who works Kira at Island, yeah, yeah, and then John Dykstra, followed by Richard Edland. Everybody was great, but those first yeah. three speakers, which is I think in the first thirty minutes of the talk, they mm-hmm. talked about something that I think is is really important. Uh, thing to sort of always make note of, like how how lucky uh, we are in visual effects, and in particular, sort of the DNA of industrial light and magic when it first started as kind of like the premier visual effects house at the time in the you know mid nineteen seventies. How much mm-hmm. uh, they were sort of founded in this kind of sense of um, not being competitive with each other, the people working there, that it was, it was, it was a team effort. It was hugely collaborative. Information was there to be shared. Everyone was an expert in their own way with their own coming from their own unique background. And John John Noel made that point that you're saying, like he was saying that when he was young at ILM, he was able in reviews to offer his opinion with these senior guys. Yeah. That that culture, I think of, of, of innovation and of, um, experimentation and, Hey, let's try this, not knowing if it's going to work and that any idea was a good idea. I feel like that's something that's just so important to the industry, to the advancement of all these technologies that we're talking about, even in this film, I just feel like it's, it was so inspiring, um, hearing all of that and hearing that history. And we talk about it some, I mean, I think we all kind of know that in this industry, that it's kind of a part of a part and parcel of what makes this, I think a really special industry to, to work in. But I think that, um, hearing it encapsulated that way, historically, I I just found it so inspiring and, and moving really. Well, what Dykstra was saying about like, um, to your point, he was saying like, you know, some people worked in engineering, other people were like, you know, furniture makers and other, you know, they were all hippies doing all these random things, but their, their approaches to what they are doing coming together, which was really for, you know, 90% of it in engineering feat, right? Yeah. You have to make stuff, to do stuff, to perform traditional tasks in a new way, mm-hmm. um, you know, so everyone didn't have to be a grip or a, you know, an electric or whatever. They just had to be craftspeople who understood how things work mechanically and then translate that to, uh, you know, these 
these um, cinematic uh, moments, uh, that's obviously downplaying the significance slightly in the way I'm describing it. But, you know, and, and to your point, he said, like, you know, everybody did every job. Yep. Like, yeah. if you were this guy, it doesn't mean that you couldn't do what that guy or gal was doing because maybe they weren't there that day or maybe you worked a night shift. Although I found it really interesting that Harrison Ellenshaw, who was doing the map paintings up until he he told a story about how he had never seen a model of the Millennium Falcon because yeah. he worked at night <laughs> doing map paintings because he was doing other uh, traditional animation at Disney during the day because his father, Peter Ellenshaw, had, you know, uh, you know, won Oscars on uh, on uh, everything, Mary Poppins, and and so yeah. on. That he was doing that during the day, doing these map paintings at night, and he mirrored the cockpit on the Millennium Falcon mm-hmm. because it was it looked better to him. And then when he went into the review, they were like, "What do you, have you?" have you even seen this? He's like, dudes, I don't have a script and they lock up the models at night. I'm here by myself, like painting. I've never seen any of this stuff, which is insane. You know what I mean? Like you don't think about it. They just assumed, I don't know that what he was just going to know certain things based on information that was floating around. And they were like, here's the keys, go look at the models. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, but Can- yeah, I mean, go ahead. I was going to say no. I just I think that was really interesting, but I I didn't want to leave this without acknowledging that I, one of the people I really liked listening to was Rachel Rose at the end. Oh, um, yeah, and I also yeah. that um, Craig Barron and and a bunch of people helped put this on with the Academy, and I think that they should be applauded for not only the amazing people they had, but making sure that there were women that were speaking, and there were women that were totally relevant. Right, like Rachel won on a SciTech Oscar. It's not she's like a token woman, right? But they, you know, like it was a healthy balance of, yeah. I mean, obviously it's an industry dominated by guys, but it didn't feel, you know, unnecessarily thus. And Well, I, and if I, you I looked think, at all the, the footage they were showing of ILM from 75 to 79, it actually was a fairly balanced, at least in terms of the pictures, there was a lot of men and women, you know, different ethnicities. It, it seemed very... Diverse, which you would assume from a bunch of hippies, you know, would would have uh, an approach like that. Obviously, the some of the a lot of the keys were were men for for whatever reason uh, throughout that point. Although, you know, Marsha Lucas, you know, told her story with Ben Burt about how she cut the the battle, you know, the final battle scene on the Death Star um, from footage she was able to cobble together from dailies and tons of old black and white dog fights. And it was her who chopped out like Luke's initial run and said, he only needs one run. And she paced out the whole sequence herself and then gave it to the animators to pick their shots, you know, to, to, to finesse their shots of, with the ships. So like, obviously outside of whatever was written in the script, she did an enormous amount of, of uh, improvement to the story and pacing of the what is arguably one of the best culminating climaxes for multiple threads of a storyline, you know, in cinematic history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was a great a great event, and I and obviously we don't spend the whole show on it, but um, I just was so glad you could be there. Like uh, it was just because yeah. it was one of those things, you know, it's good to watch, but I'm sure it was nothing like being actually in the room, right? And, yeah, it was uh, great. And, and, it got, and I got to see Gareth uh, Edwards. He was there. It was nice to run into him. He's always director, busy whenever I... Of Rogue director One. Of, yeah, director uh, of Rogue, Rogue One. One. And he's and such a humble... Nice 
Yeah, he's such oh, a gotcha. humble guy. Like they they had a thing where they said everyone who worked on the original Star Wars, raise your hand and you know stand up. Everybody stood up. Everybody applauded. And they said, "If you worked on Rogue One, stand up." And like Gareth wouldn't stand up. Like he was just sort of being <laughs> like, "No, I'm," you know, like everyone else should, you know, get their thing. And then they were like, "No, Gareth, stand up." You know, take your applause. Like he's just such a nice dude. Oh, um, yeah. Genuine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's yeah. Uh, well, sorry. Just I, I never got you to actually ask. Uh, where can people find you if they want to connect with you and and uh, uh, Jason Diamond and most of the social media. Pipes, uh, uh, Super Sphere, Framio, all that kind of stuff. Excellent, and uh, and of course I'm Mike Seymour on uh, Twitter. Also, um, uh, we're on Instagram a bunch more now. We uh, John and I and FX Guide are doing more stuff on Instagram. So if you want to check that out, if you go to FX Guide, um, we've actually got a little uh, connection box on the new FX Guide because we've relaunched the site. Uh, there's an FX Guide social panel where you've got um, links to everything, including our uh, FX Guide VFX uh, Instagram account, which we're going to start posting a lot uh, of stuff to, starting with uh, SIGGRAPH this year, where we're going to be doing a huge amount of stuff. But, um, yeah, uh, do you guys see the new site, the new FX Guide? John's done an amazing job with, re, uh, with rebuilding FX Guide. It's just I saw so it briefly exciting. on my phone, but I, I need to look at it on my computer and sort of get into it. I've seen it. Well, in fact, I love that's it. one of the reasons awesome. that... <laughs> oh, thanks, man. It's one of the reasons that John redid the site was to make it better for mobile. Uh, oh, yeah, it was it was great. Uh, I read the Star Wars article real quick. I wanted to poke through it, and and it was super easy to use and navigate as a as a site. So, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, John's done an amazing job. I wish I could take any credit for it, but I can't <laughs> take any credit whatsoever. He's so good at uh, not only organizing things and running things and all the other things that he does. Um, uh, but yes, he just is uh, the guy who manages all of the uh, hardcore programming and backing up and stuff. And by the way, just by way of uh, linking back to Toy Story, did you guys see that somebody reposted what happened on Toy Story 2 with them losing the film? Did you see that? Oh, God, no. <laughs> so so John runs FX Guide so that we have these uh, incredible backups and checked backups and archives and stuff. And he can literally, you know, from anywhere in the world, get the site back up and running, which happened the other day, actually. Um, we sometimes get denial of service attacks and other things. Yeah. Um, anyway, Pixar on Toy Story 2, this is a true story, but I Oh, I remember it. that, yeah. They, um, on 2, they, somebody did a Unix command that basically started deleting everything on their servers. And somebody phoned down and literally got them to pull the plug on the server before it destroyed the film, but it lost most of the film. And um, luckily someone was on maternity leave and they had a old uh, SGI Indigo, yeah. I'm going to say, box and um so they you know they described it as like a hundred million dollar car ride where they went to this person's house <laughs> carefully hand carried it back to pixar to recover but of course there'd been a fork from when she'd left for maternity leave and work they'd done since then so there was still a huge amount of labor to integrate that back in but it it was quite yeah. literally the thing that sort of saved the film um <laughs> yeah i remember seeing they, seeing that they had backups they just never checked the backups uh, well, it's a bit more complicated than that, but that's basically the rub. So, yeah, yeah they'd done backups. When they went to get them back, they discovered there was a fault with the backup mechanism. And, uh, yeah, though I will say this to Matt's point about um, attitude in visual effects companies. Pixar pointed to that as a great example of not them failing but of them winning because instead of going around trying to find who the person is they should fire that did this 
and yelling and screaming, um, the whole company pitched together to solve the problem, to make it work, right. to, to get the stuff back. And in one of those kind of, you know, in a moment of sort of defeat, you have your finest hour as people don't really mm -hmm. rise to the occasion. They didn't view it as the worst, blackest of times, but actually one of the moments that, that people really pulled together and, you know, weren't right. accusational, uh, which I thought was really sweet, you know, and, and really nice. Yeah. But, I'm sure, I'm sure they'd appreciate it if they didn't have to go through that very often. Yeah. <laughs> there are other um, anyway, stories you, like that that I can't really, oh, really share, but I know other stories very similar to that one from other places right. I have worked. <laughs> really? Well, I hope that if the same sentiment was the case. That oh, yeah. There's that spirit of fix it, not, not crucify someone. Um, I'm sure one would feel bad enough as it is. Yeah. But um, my point of bringing it up is... John does all this amazing stuff on FX Guide and, uh, and I don't nearly thank him enough. So let me take this opportunity to say that John Montgomery is a friggin' pagan god and, uh, and my best friend and I really appreciate all the stuff that he does. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for being with us, guys. Check us out on FX Guide and, as I say, John and mine and FX Guide's um, social feeds. Uh, and we have a whole lot more films coming up. Really appreciate it. Uh, Matt, thank you for all the editing that you've been doing on the show. Um, you bet. Just terrific work. And uh, Jason, as always, see you, mate. Thanks so much. Thank you. See you guys. Bye. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.